Before we head into our sermon, we have a special video to share with you about Kylie Co., a men's transitional housing organization that we've partnered with. Last summer, we started praying about how we could best use the property now that we own it. I'm meeting Kenny Siegel here. And Kenny Siegel is the CEO of a nonprofit Christian ministry called Kylie Co. Generation Church and Kylie Co. ended up partnering together to work on a ministry uh, project that would serve disadvantaged men who were coming out of uh, various rehabilitation programs by providing a Christian transitional house. So Kylico started originally from, you know, myself, I actually went through a 12-month program, I saw a lot, of, a lot of things that were missing from the recovery process. I just kept seeing them come back, and all of them said the same thing. They couldn't find a job, they, they didn't uh, know what to do, they moved back to the same old house and area that they grew up in. Um, and if you do that, you're around those same old friends, and, and the bad habits start to come back, you know, and they just give up. So not having anywhere to go is essential um, for your continued sobriety and recovery. Uh, Alfonso, we'll take it away from here. All Thanks, right. Alfonso. Come on in. Here's the gym area that we share with the others, but we are able to come in and, uh, and play some basketball. On Sunday mornings, we get together and we feed homeless people. At about seven o'clock in the morning, we have a little chapel for them and we provide them with a nice breakfast. Um, we provide them with steak and eggs and potatoes and always coffee. And they enjoy a little short sermon. And it's a good outreach. We also give them clothes and hygiene kits and what have you. Whatever we have a surplus of, we give it, give it to them. And we're creating a, a gym area do their laundry, maybe work out a bit. I built a set of steps going down the garden area. And we got a couple of barbecue kits down here. Tables and chairs set up. It's a work in progress. We got still that area over there to clean up. Um, this is the planter boxes. You can get a pretty good shot right here of what we're planting. We already got the cilantro coming up and I've already noticed strawberries and there's tomatoes that are already going. So it's a nice little project we're doing. In living area, computer station set up for the men so they can get online and job applications and what have you. This is one of the bedrooms. This is the office. We just did an intake this morning. We have volunteers who are state certified that come in and, and work with the drug and alcohol counseling part of it. And we thought it would be really important for you guys to get to hear from a staff member from Kylie Co. Right, and you mentioned uh, being homeless in Oakland and San Francisco. Um, I wonder if you could share a little bit about your experience with that. Uh, it was very traumatic. I mean, Kind of like the first night um, when you know you're going to be homeless and you don't have any covering, it's the most traumatic night because it's cold out here in the Bay Area. And uh, luckily for me, I actually found a big dumpster, and in that big dumpster, I found you know this old, rotten, 
blanket. And let me tell you, it was the best thing I could ever found because it kept me warm. It was stinky, it was smelly, but it kept me warm. I think that the biggest thing is that you kind of lose your humanity. You lose your, you know, who you are as a person. You lose your hope. Back to the Kylie Co. ministry, it's a transitional housing ministry. Can you tell me, like, what sets this ministry apart from other transitional houses? What's different about it? Jesus. That is the number one reason that sets it apart because, number one, we love Jesus with all of our heart. And because we love Jesus, we give that love that is, that is the love that doesn't want anything back that Christ has, that just wants love for love's sake. When you love on a brother, That's why Christianity grew. That's why it's still thriving over 2,000 years. It's the love, man. When you when you get it, when that person gets a job, when that brother gets a job, when they when they get back on their feet, they get a car, they get a license, they get they get connected to a church family, they get they get they get fellowship. All of those things transforms them, and you get your hope back. You get your personality back. You get your life back. This tells us, you know, not to be conform to the world, but to be transformed by the renewing of the mind. And we get that there because of the scriptures, because of our Bible studies, but also because God is working in our lives to transform that uh, improper thinking that we did before and those patterns that drove us to the point of being homeless and, and having despair and losing our humanity to the point of being the sons of God, to being people that when, when people look at us, they go, I know that person loves Jesus because of the way they love and the way they act. It's priceless to see a man transform into a, 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 just a, a new creature. It's priceless. Regeneration, uh, glad to have you all tune into our virtual service, and thank you so much for your continued faithfulness in praying for us and your generosity to support us as we continue in our ministry, and as I'm sure many of you have been blessed by the video from Kylie Co., uh, just another community that we desire to serve and to bless at this time, and so we're really happy to partner with Kylie Co., uh, last week we left off at verse 10 where it reads this. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Today we're going to be looking at verses 11 through 18. John makes the relationship with God really simple in this letter that he's written in 1 John and he, he's stating either you're a child of God or you're a child of the devil. And really no complicated formula to figure out who we are a child of. Uh, there isn't a scale that he presents that if you're, you know, mostly 51% or you're a child of God. or, or you're, He just makes it really, really simple that you're, you either are a child of God or you're a child of the devil. We know that by nature we are children of the devil, but by God's grace we have become children of God. In our culture, generally speaking, of course, it tends to value this kind of ambiguity when it comes to truth and to spiritual things. 
the culture tends to encourage people to hold on to their own truth and what they believe over what is actually truth or true and how those beliefs are derived. Where the derivation of those beliefs overwhelmingly value feelings over truth. Now, John isn't devaluing feelings because if he didn't care about feelings, he wouldn't address us as little children or dear children or write to us about being children of God. He wouldn't address love if he wasn't considerate about our feelings. Yet John is writing to inform us that love is more than mere feelings. Love has truth behind it. And it's not your truth or my truth. It is simply just truth that is behind it. And this is really important to know because John is warning us about others who may lead the children of God astray presenting their own truth rather than simply truth. 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 and 19. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they all are not of us. John wrote about how those who used to identify as Christians left. And when they left, they taught about different things other than Christianity. They added to it. They took away from it. That the faith that they had left lacked in these truths, these things, or, or that it made too much of something, or that it shouldn't be followed. So the church had a lot of former believers who began to influence others with their additions of what they felt the church lacked, or with their deletions of what they felt the church had too much of. And so John is leading us back to our relationship with God based on truth, that you're a child of God or you're a child of the devil. And people who once trusted in God started adding or deleting from this relationship. And so John reminds his readers, do not stray from what you knew from the beginning. Take a look at verse 11, 1 John chapter 3. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning. And this message from the beginning is the truth of what was received from Jesus Christ. The people that John wrote in opposition to were people who were absorbed with what was new, which actually wasn't anything new. People had this spirit of continually looking for what was new back in ancient Greece and into the days of the Apostle Paul when he visited Athens. Take a look at Acts chapter 17, verse 21. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. And not much has changed 2,000 years later. People think that talking about Jesus Christ's death 2,000 years ago is really old news. There has to be something new. And they want something new to explain why they exist and who they are, how we got here, what the meaning of life is, when we've already been told. And what is this that has already been told? Look back to Acts chapter 17 again, verse 24. 
The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. Skip down to verse 30. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. See, it's going back to Christ's message, to that beginning. And these guys always want what's new, but Paul pulls them back to this beginning. Peter does the same thing. It's not something new. He goes back to the beginning with Jesus Christ, and he reminds them of what to remember. Take a look at Second Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 12. Therefore I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it is right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that putting off of my body will be soon as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me, and I will make every effort so that after my departure you may be able at any time to recall these things. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So we have Paul, we have Peter, and now here we have John. They all have the same original message of Christ from the beginning. Back to John. 1 John chapter 2, verse 24. Let what you have heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you have heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. There's no new message from Jesus Christ. It hasn't changed. The same message that Paul received, that Peter received, that John received, it's the same. Jesus Christ and his message have not changed, and it will not change. And so we need to keep this on the forefront of our minds because our world always has something new to pull us away from Christ who doesn't change. Now, our methodologies of ministries change, yes. But our doctrine doesn't change. And we're not talking about people who weren't there. Peter and John were eyewitnesses of Jesus. They were there with him, first-hand witnesses. Now, Paul wasn't, but he was a contemporary of Peter and John who then converted from an enemy of Christ to a servant of Christ when he encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus. But this truth that we are anchored to of Jesus is not something that comes much later as new. It's from the beginning. Peter, Paul, and John have the same message. And then comes this command in verse 11, the second part of it, that we should love one another. The message of Christ in its entirety is what we've heard from the beginning, including this message of loving one another, which is also from the beginning. Love for one another is what God expects out of us. We're not Christians without love for one another. So what is this love? Well, John first describes this love through a negative lens. Let's look at verse 12. We should not be like Cain. Negative, right? 
So he's saying, let me tell you, tell you what love isn't and what you shouldn't be like. And so let's look at Cain. Got to turn back to Genesis chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. Why would Cain be angry? They had the same parents. Adam and Eve would have instructed both of these sons on how to give an offering. And here we find that Cain's offering wasn't regarded, but Abel's was. But this shouldn't really have been a surprise to Cain because they had the same parents who taught them the same thing. And he should have known what God expected because he would have instructed, been instructed from a very young age as to what God regarded for offerings. Now we're not here to analyze why God regarded one and not the other offering. We're here because of 1 John chapter 3 to look at what love isn't. So let's just continue in Genesis, verse 6 of chapter 4. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you. But you must rule over it. You see here, God wasn't rejecting Cain. God didn't regard his offering, but, but he didn't reject Cain. And, and then look at this more closely. He's actually giving Cain an opportunity to make it right. Because God further instructs him about doing well or not doing well. But then what does he do? Verse 8. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Cain is a person who is known as someone who willfully rejected God's command, whether it was in his offering or God's further instruction to do well. And John here uses him as an example of this, and, and so does Jude in, in Jude verse 11. Cain is in the practice of sin where he was overtaken by envy, overtaken by hatred and murder. You see, faith responds to God's word, and Abel responded in faith. Look at Hebrews chapter 11 verse 4. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. Abel trusted what God said, and Cain didn't. Abel's sacrifice was commended as righteous, and this righteousness was commended by God's acceptance of Abel's gifts. If there is anything that gets an unrighteous person angry or jealous, envious, hate-filled, murderous, it's a righteous person. Unholy people can't stand holy people. 
either the holy person becomes unholy or the unholy person becomes holy, but that relationship between unholy and holy, righteous and unrighteous, can't stay the same. Something has to give. John chapter 3, starting in verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Have you ever wondered why it's so challenging to get people into our Alpha course? Which we'll be running later in the summer. Or why it's so challenging to get people to attend church with you. Or nowadays, watch a church service with you. Darkness hates light. Why? Because it exposes them. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? You'll either bring them into the light or they will pull you into the darkness. Don't be like Cain. Don't get pulled into the darkness. Continuing on in verse 12. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Cain could have passed to the light, but he stayed in the darkness. He let his resentment grow. He let his hatred grow, his envy, his jealousy, and then it leads to murder. Now, let's not be so proud to think that this can't happen to any of us. Some of us may not like the light we see. Some of us may be envious of others' lives and how they're living. Some of us may be murderous in our thoughts or our words or, or our hearts towards other people. Take a look at verse 13. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Cain hated Abel's righteousness. So is it all that surprising that the world hates us? If the world doesn't hate us, maybe we're not bright enough. Read John chapters 15 through 17 and it'll shine light on all of this. Verse 13 tells us not to be surprised that the world hates us. So then why are we so, so surprised when the world hates us? Sometimes the church is really preoccupied with people liking us. We don't want to do anything that has people dislike us, let alone hate us. But John wrote, Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. If we're not hated by the world, we need to ask, Why? Why aren't we? 
If the world loves us, we need to ask, why? Why do they love us? And it's not a good sign, actually, if the world loves us, even though it may feel good. It's not a good sign. Why? Because maybe our light isn't on. Because the darkness is comfortable in darkness. It's not comfortable in light. And so maybe we've compromised too much and we're too dim to have a dark world hate the light. You see, there's a really, really huge problem when there's no difference between the world and the church. And this is not to say that we're out there to purposely get people to hate us for the wrong reasons. That's not the point here. It'll be exponentially worse to be hated for being unkind, unloving, condemning, judgmental, uncharitable, all those negative, negative things. John is talking about being hated for righteousness' sake. And many of you know what this is like. You don't, you don't gossip with the people you work with. You don't cuss with them. You don't tell crude jokes. You don't get drunk with them. And the people you work with wonder what in the world is wrong with you. And they accuse you of being uptight or a goody two-shoes. And it's like, oh, one of those Christians that just doesn't know how to get down with us and party with us. The world doesn't like righteousness. You make them feel really uncomfortable. We're commanded by God to love one another, not like Cain, who had this opportunity to repent, but he goes the way of darkness. We know that if we're like Abel, living righteously, we're going to be hated by unrighteous people like his brother or the world. So don't be surprised by that. That's actually a good sign. Verse 14, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. This phrase here, we have passed out of death into life. That we were once dead, but now we're alive. Once we were in the dark, now we're in the light. Once filled with hate, now filled with love. Once like Cain, now we're like Abel. Like Abel, living in righteousness, doing well before God. Loving each other is the evidence we are of Christ. Loving each other is, isn't how we move from death to life. It is the proof that we have passed out of death into life. And it's not a work. It's not a task. It's a fruitfulness. It's an evidence. See, anyone can love as a task, as a work. Because we're all created in the image of God, so we all have the capacity to love. But those attempts to love as works aren't a comprehensive love. The real test of true love is whether we have passed out of death into life, and the confirmation of moving from life to death is loving one another. Now, the all-important question for us this morning is have you passed out of death into life and if you have is there evidence of love to prove of this conversion and there are other evidences too such as obedience and faithfulness and righteousness to God that is like Abel verse 15 everyone who hates his brother is a murderer and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. 
is there a hatred inside of you that you haven't let go of yet? Are you harboring hatred towards someone that it, it, your heart is so hardened that you are not going to forgive them or that you're not postured to forgive them? Take a look at Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 and 22. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So, is a murderer redeemable according to 1 John chapter 3, verse 15? In order to interpret that correctly, we need to interpret Scripture with Scripture. And we know that in Luke 23, 23, Jesus said, Father, forgive them. Who are them? Those who are murdering him. For they know not what they do. So therefore, murderers can be forgiven. So what is 1 John chapter 3, verse 15 speaking of then? It seems to me it's speaking of a heart of a pervading hatred towards a person or persons which can't coexist with the love of God because God is love. And so that hatred cannot coexist with God. Now back to 1 John chapter 3 starting in verse 16 now. By this we know we love him that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brothers in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Don't be like Cain. Be like Jesus. Love like Jesus. How? He laid down his life for our lives. Love is the evidence of passing from death to life. And sacrifice is how this is demonstrated. Hatred presents itself in murder. You see Cain, Cain who takes another's life out of hatred to get rid of them. Love presents itself as a sacrifice. Jesus who gives his own life out of love so that others can live. It's amazing what many of you are doing now. Those who continue to serve the homeless, you're putting your own health at risk as you do this. Those who continue to financially give to others who have lost their jobs or their businesses aren't doing that well right now. Those who continue to give sacrificially to our church so that we can continue our ministry like this partnership that we're embarking on with Kylie Co. and sacrificing your own health, sacrificing your own resources, all out of love. Now it's important to note that Jesus didn't die to be an example of sacrifice. Jesus' sacrifice, his death, was to bear our sins. We already studied this earlier on in 1 John. He didn't die to show us how to be sacrificial, even though it does show us how to do that. He died because you and I were dead in our sins, and there was no hope of life without him. 
Now, it would be really, really insane for someone to die for us simply because they loved us. Wouldn't it? I mean, I, I really love my children, but I don't prove it to them by saying I'm going to kill myself. Like, that doesn't prove it to them. That's insanity. Where my love for them is proven in a sacrificial way is that I sacrifice myself by, by pushing them out of the way from a speeding car so that I can save their life and in the process I lose my own. See, Jesus didn't die just because he loves you, which he does. He died because you were already on the road to get killed by a bus. And he took your place. Jesus laid down his life for us. We were already sentenced to eternal damnation. And so it reads, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. We don't do what Cain did. Kill his brother. We do what Jesus did. Sacrifice his own life for us. And so in this time of pandemic, we lay down our lives for others. Now, we're not saying be foolish. Doesn't mean that you go out there without any precautions and you don't wear masks and you don't practice safe distancing and you don't wash hands. But when there's a brother or sister in need, we, we go. We serve. There's a family in the church who so exemplifies this. There was a sister in our church who, who's homeless. And she had just been discharged out of the hospital um, after being in the hospital for a couple of weeks. And she was quite ill. And it's completely understandable that she didn't want to go back to her homeless encampment with her current condition. And so the funds that have been given to our benevolence fund, we were ready to use those funds towards a motel and, and let her stay there as she recovered and to, to serve her and to provide her food and everything that she needed there. And so I reached out to this particular family because they knew her so much better than anyone else in the church. And so the, the gentleman and his wife of this family, they, they get in the car, they go to the hospital, and they, they drive her to temporary housing. And, and the wife of the couple um, is doing all this legwork and, and finds out because uh, that the motel room that we would put her in would be so temporary compared to finding a, a longer-lasting uh, housing situation that would be able to provide for her. And then she goes off and, and drives her to this new place and provides her with what she needs during her stay. Totally reminds me of the Good Samaritan story and that she sacrifices her own health and her own family's resources for another person. And this is a person with children. And it's so evident that God's love abides in them, that it's not just talk, but it is in deed and in truth, because I know this family has not shied away from sharing the love of God with her, as well as the gospel. They are the embodiment of 1 John chapter 3, verse 17. And that's just one story of many stories in our church that are happening right now. I'm so humbled by how some of you have laid down your life for others. Look at verse 16 again, where brothers is plural, as in laying our life down for others. It's just generally speaking, but then it gets really personal in verse 17 in identifying a brother. And that's what this family did. They identified a, a particular person, a specific person. It wasn't a general thing in that they were just thinking of helping the people out there in need. They saw a specific person and they loved her. 
when you see someone and God nudges you to love them, do you? And in no way am I trying to guilt you in, into feeling bad because I must confess to you that I failed at this just not too long ago. So I'm preaching to myself. I went to get takeout for one of my daughter's birthdays and, and so there was this lady outside the restaurant who was set up there and, and, and so I, I sensed this nudging to give her some of our food before heading home because I, I, I did buy quite a bit and the thing is I didn't. And since that time I've been convicted of it ever since. Now why didn't I simply listen and do it? It was mostly out of fear. I had a couple of my daughters with me and that lady that was there didn't have a mask on and she didn't look like she had washed her hands in quite a while and she didn't look well, frankly. And so I didn't want to get close to her and I didn't want my daughters to get close to her. But looking back, those were just excuses. I could have simply just put the food six feet away from her and told her, here, the food's there for you and given her a mask, and given her some hand sanitizer, but I didn't do it, and I failed. It's so easy to love the people we want to love, because I'd do anything for my daughters. But are we ready to love people that we don't even know? We're going to rub elbows with them, or at least be six feet away from them. What are we going to do? You can be like me, who was the priest or the Levite in that Good Samaritan story, passing on the other side, and essentially that's who I was that day when I could have helped that lady outside the restaurant. Or you could be like the Good Samaritan, like the family who helped that sick lady who needed to be driven from the hospital when she was discharged, driving her to housing, providing all the supplies she needed to be discharged from the hospital. That story is in Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 33. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. I had compassion too, but this is where I messed up. It's in doing. You can feel something, but you got to act on it. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. That he, then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. The word of God is so powerful. The spirit of God is so powerful, so dynamic, so convicting. I could not be at peace since that act of disobedience. And so I went back looking for that lady with my 10-year-old daughter. And unfortunately, she wasn't there anymore. And so I confessed to my daughter why I didn't initially do it, that I was disobedient, I wasn't listening to the Spirit of God, I was living in fear, and we learned from it. And I've been grieving through that bad decision 
that I've repented of my mistakes and I, that I missed an opportunity to love in deed and in truth. And since that time, it has been kind of neat in my family because it has opened the eyes of my daughters to be a lot more compassionate, to remind me like, Dad, remember? We should get something for that person. They look hungry. They need a mask. So it has some positive things with the repentance and with the humility to just show my children I messed up, but we need to do right now. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. We have a huge opportunity to love like Jesus in deed and in truth during this pandemic. To not be like Cain, to be like the Good Samaritan, to be like our Cross Streets volunteers, to be like the Kylie Co. guys, to be like that family who helped the lady discharge from the hospital during this time of our pandemic. To truly love in deed and in truth. Let's pray. Lord, you are a forgiving God. Your heart is full of compassion and love for us. And even when we do mess up, when we humble ourselves and repent and acknowledge our mistakes, you're so willing to forgive. May we have the same grace, mercy, compassion that you have, especially during this time of what we're experiencing in our shelter in place in this pandemic when there are so many opportunities for us to love in deed and in truth. That it's not simply just the actions, God, but there, are, there is power in your gospel in sharing your love for people. And so may we not forget that there's that aspect of it, that it's not simply just giving food, we have a spiritual food to give as well. That we can always pray for people. That we intercede for them, not just in this physical world, in this natural world, but also in the heavenly places, in the supernatural. So Lord, we ask for your equipping. We ask for your empowerment to do things that are beyond our fear, beyond our ability we pray, Lord, that you would bless your church to go out and do more than ever. That we would cease this opportunity, Lord, to make your name known in Jesus' name. Amen. At this time, uh, I want to invite you for communion. And so maybe it's become habit now that you have your elements ready. And if not, you can just press pause and grab what you need. I'm so thankful for this sacrament every week that we get to do this regularly, that we can hold the bread before us, symbolizing the body of Christ broken for us, not merely as an example, but that he pushed us out of the way, that he took our place. And so as you take some time to reflect upon your relationship with Christ and Hopefully the Holy Spirit is doing some business in you in terms of showing you the things where you're 
inconsistent. Perhaps you're harboring an unforgiveness or a hatred in your heart like Cain did. Or maybe you just simply haven't listened in an act of obedience to repent of that and to know God can forgive you of those things. That God even forgives the murderer for they don't know what they are doing. That he forgives them. Let's take this in celebration in remembrance of the sacrifice of Christ in love for us. And let's prepare our fruit of the vine. The blood that Christ shed for us. Symbolizing that lifeblood that was spilled on our behalf. Let's take this together. Lord, we remember you. We continue this sacrament until your return and how we look forward to that, where you will make everything right. In Jesus' name, amen.